Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Guys Guys Radio. This is Robert Manny, your host, welcoming you to the show. It is Wednesday, July 23rd, 2015. I hope everybody's having a great summer. We're right smack dab in the middle of it uh, here in the East Coast, in the Northeast, in the New York, New Jersey metro area. It has been absolutely spectacular today. We had, I think, one of the most beautiful days of the year. Beautiful breeze, highs in like 70, around 80, ocean temperature, like just about 70 degrees, just crystal clear skies and some cumulus clouds, but absolutely beautiful. So it's vacation time for a lot of people, and I hope everybody's out there really making the most of what's been a really nice summer so far. But let's talk about our show. We have a great show this evening. Our special guest is Dean Slider. He is an author and uh, also a leading expert on uh, meditation. And he's written a fantastic book, uh, Cinema Nirvana, about um, enlightenment uh, coming through in a lot of the movies we see. A really interesting book, and he did a great job with the audio version of the book, which is no easy task. We're going to bring him out in a few moments. But let's talk about what's going on today a little bit more. Um, Okay, this summer seems to be dominated by... uh, Donald Trump's big mouth, (laughs) whether you love him or hate him or or indifferent, he is entertaining, I'll say that. And uh, he's just taking everybody on in the Republican Party. And what's so with with the things he said, uh, he's he's insulted Mexicans, he's insulted um, John McCain. He's just taking Lindsey Graham. He gave out his cell phone number. He, he, Rick Perry made fun of his glasses. Uh, He's just no prisoners. He's he's on the war path. And the, the surprising thing is, or maybe not so surprising, is that uh, the polls show him having a, a double-digit lead over his uh, his uh, uh, competitors in the Republican Party. And it's, uh, it's, it's amazing that, that that's happening because he's not a politician. But on the other hand, he's absolutely striking a nerve with a lot of disenchanted uh, voters who are saying like, they're sick of politicians and they just want to hear somebody say, I'm going to get something done. Uh, but he's gone completely over the top. And um, But um, even with the things he said about John McCain's, uh, uh, you know, not being a hero and his kind of diminishing his, marginalizing his being a POW. And a lot has been, if you do the research and read up on John McCain, there's, there is some kind of questionable stuff about his... Uh, military career. However, he did serve. He did get captured. He did put five years in the prison camp and he didn't want to let himself get released until his comrades did. So uh, you got to give him props for uh, he really towed the line there, whatever you think of his politics. Um, his, his accepting Sarah Palin as a run, running mate was a really crazy idea. But regardless, he's been kind of a maverick and uh, I don't even know what, what why he's relevant to what Donald Trump's slinging these days. But we'll see what happens with Trump. If uh, if uh, the Republicans will warm up to him, if he's going to scare a bunch of them away, if he's going to, I'm sure the his competitors are like shaking in their, quaking in their boots, not wanting to get into a debate with him because he really doesn't care. He'll say anything. So that's going to be very uh, entertaining and interesting. So we'll see what happens. On the other side, you've got, you've got Hillary and Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders has a really sound platform, in my opinion. And, um, Hopefully, uh, people will start to take his his actual platform instead of the whole personality thing. Take take his platform seriously because he's got some interesting things he's saying, and uh, it's hard to disagree with uh, a lot of the his foundation. Uh, what else is going on? Um, I've been on this diet with my wife over the, the the month of July. We decided and uh, to like rid of any type of candida. Uh, sugar overgrowth, um, gluten, anything like that in our body. So we've done a lot of different types of dieting, and um, this is a new one. So for the month of July, we basically haven't had any bread, pasta, pizza, mushrooms, alcohol, meat, uh, cereal, 
grain, um, fruit, sugar, jam, pie, cake, candy, soda, wine, and on and on. So basically we've been eating uh, grilled vegetables, eggs, salads, and um, fish occasionally, and drinking a lot of water. And it has been spectacular, the results. Um, feeling fantastic. Uh, dropped about 14 pounds, and I've kept it off for the past week, this being like the two and a half weeks into it now. It'll be done uh, done in a week, actually. Three three weeks into it, it'll be done in a week. And, um, uh, it, you know, it's a once-in-a-while type of thing because from all of the research <clears throat> I've done, most people, at least 85% of people, have some type of candida issue where they, uh, you know, from the sugar and the processed foods, uh, it starts to overgrow and affects your, uh, makes your organs work a little bit too hard. And then you can run into autoimmune <coughs> disease situations. So just trying to clear that out and like getting rid of the gluten and really detox, <coughs> it's been an amazing experience. And uh, it's not easy though. Every day has been really tough. Um, even though I know the food is good and clean, I just, you know, I'm so used to eating uh, carbohydrates and bread and pasta and uh, other stuff that, um, you know, I'm a runner, so I burn most of it off. So I've been out there running, but I can't run the same speed and I can't run the same distance because I don't have any, I don't have any extra fuel. So I'm actually burning fat while I'm exercising. So I'm down serious weight and I'm keeping it off. So, uh, something interesting to consider, um, if you're into the dieting mode and, you know, you take the month of July, it's kind of an off month and do it then and get it out of the way. And, you know, I'll be back eating other stuff again, but, uh, it's good to do now and then to, to, you know, test your body and really treat it like the temple it is. Um, so anyhow, that's what I've been up to. So, Okay, Guys Guys Radio, uh, this is a place where when men and women can be at their best, everybody wins. And you know all about uh, my platform. You know all about the brand, um, the book, the original novel, The Guys Guys Guide to Love. It's available. You can get it online. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it at a lot of different e-tailers, uh, the physical book or the uh, e-book. And you can find the physical book in some bookstores also. Um, my blog is at robertmanny.com, um, the website, also Facebook, Robert Manny Author, at Robert Manny Twitter, YouTube, Robert Manny Author, and we're doing a video series we're just going to launch next week, and all podcast <coughs> episodes of Guys Guys Radio are on iTunes as well as Blog Talk Radio. So that's kind of what's happening. And uh, things are good. We're, we're approaching our 150 podcasts, and we're booked through November now, so it's really exciting. Let's talk a little bit about our guest, Dean Slider. He's taught natural meditation throughout the United States since 1970. He's written several books and audio programs, including Cinema Nirvana, which we're going to talk about this evening, uh, The Zen Commandments. Um, he's led retreats, workshops um, all over the country. And um, he's been featured in the New York Times, USA Today, New York Magazine, Publishers Weekly, and his media appearances. He's been on Oprah and Friends Radio, uh, National Public Radio, uh, Lisa Oz Show, and he's been on Guys Guys Radio talking about his book, uh, Natural Meditation. So uh, let's bring him on right now and talk about his book, Cinema Nirvana. Hi there. Good. Hello. How are you, Dean? How's everything going? I'm, it's going great. How you doing, Robert? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks so much. I'm actually broadcasting today um, from a remote studio. If I told you where I was and where, where exactly I am, you'd have a big laugh. So I'm actually not going to do that, but I'm glad to hear your voice and I'm glad you heard my voice and we're on the air. Okay. So that's all I can say about that. Okay. It's all, <laughs> all systems go. <laughs> yep. Uh, and I know you're from New Jersey originally, aren't you? Because I saw you had a nine, like me, you have a 908 cell phone number. I live in the city. Uh, I, I, I'm not originally from there, but I lived in New Jersey for 33 years. And I think that uh, makes me, gives me some kind of official New Jersey, Absolutely. New Jerseyite, New Jerseyan yeah, status. About it. Uh, about it. Where but, did you live? And I'm, uh, I lived in Plainfield for most of that time. Okay, because I was in and, Scotch Plains for about 10 years. 
Oh, right. Yeah, you were like yeah. right next mm-hmm. door. Yeah. Yeah. But in any case, I'm now in Santa Monica, where we're also having one of those best, most glorious days of the year. But I have to tell you, we get those a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but... But I kept the 908 area right. code on, on my cell phone. Just, you know, I, I, I like having that little spot of jersey with me. Awesome. Okay. Well, listen, thank you so much for being a return guest to the show. I really, I, I loved your book. Um, uh, and it's the first time I've really done an audio book. And then I read the, a lot of the book on my, uh, on my iPhone. And, uh, which is no easy, which is, which is not easy, but you did a great job and you did a deep dive just for, for our audience. I mean, the book is really about the connection between enlightenment and spirituality and some of the movies we see. And you covered so many great movies like Snow White, Casablanca, The Godfather, Night at the Opera, The Big Sleep, Independence Day, The Graduate, Easy Rider, Jaws, The Truman Show, Memento, just on and on. And I'm wondering, I guess, first question, we can go through some of these movies, but what what was the inspiration to write this book? I know you were a film critic. And then how did you choose the movies? Right. Well, I I did Moonlight as a film critic during my years as a... um, an English teacher, actually in New Jersey. Um, I, I still write a little bit of film criticism from time to time. In fact, uh, the new Disney Pixar film, Inside Out, uh, I mm-hmm. just did a review of that from an Enlightenment point of view for Tricycle, which is a Buddhist magazine, and uh, people can find that one online. They can find that through my website, actually. Uh, so I, I keep my hand in a little bit. The way that the book came about was that uh, I would go to movies and I would come out of the movies seeing all these connections between what was going on up on the screen and all the the teachings that I'd gotten from reading uh, great enlightenment texts and from being with, you know, incredible teachers and through doing my own practice of meditation. And I realized I was seeing these connections that no one else was seeing. And my wife and I would come out of a film and I would start going on and on about, well, can't you see in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, see the dwarfs are this and look, the f- five of the dwarfs have brown eyes and but Dopey has blue eyes and Grumpy has black eyes and can't you see that this means this, this, this and this? And finally she said, Dean, why, just go in a corner somewhere and write that stuff down. Um, because they were all connections that other people were not seeing, um, and which is fine with me. In fact, the one thing that you'll notice, all the films that you just uh, ticked off there on, the, on from the table of contents, what they all have in common is that none of them has anything to do with spirituality or enlightenment in any kind of overt or obvious way. And in fact, any time that someone said, oh, yeah, you got to write about the Matrix or you got to write about, you know, something, anything that anyone would suggest, I would make a point of not doing because that's the low hanging fruit. You know, if they can see it, then there's nothing for me to do. There's no challenge there. So I deliberately took films like Jaws and Invasion of the Body Snatchers and the Marx Brothers, A Night at the Opera. And okay, let's play. Now, did you uh, find when you were doing your research and when you actually did the deep dive on these films that um, that the do you think that the screenwriters and the people who came up with the story concepts um, and maybe it was, you know, an adaptation for a novel or whatever, were consciously um, delving into a spiritual symbolic area or was this something that might have been there that they weren't aware of that was apparent to you based on your own education and teachings? Right, right, right. No, I assume that they did not intend any of these things. Um, You know, there are a few little places where we we get hints that the filmmakers had some sense of what they were doing. Uh, You know, in fact, my first chapter is on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and I start that chapter with a quote from Walt Disney. Uh, and this is, is actually something he said when he was interviewed uh, like this on the radio when the film first came out in 1937. He said, so in planning a new picture, we don't think of grown-ups and we don't think of children, but just of that fine, clean, unspoiled spot down deep in every one of us that the world has maybe made us forget 
and maybe our pictures can help recall. Mm-hmm. So that fine, clean, unspoiled spot that Disney is talking about is, I decided, that's exactly what Snow White represents. That part of us that is always, no matter what happens, it's always Snow White. It's always as pure as the driven snow. Nothing can touch it. Now, from my own training uh, and my own reading and my own experience of meditation, I know that that snow white part of us is what in some traditions is called the witness, the pure awareness. We we have the whole world of phenomena, all the changing colors and shapes and events and all the things happening in time and space, and yet that is all witnessed from a place that's beyond time and space, beyond change, beyond phenomena, and that's that's the Snow White part of us. So, you know, Disney maybe had some little hint of that, but in general, m- my assumption is, no, they had no idea. And when I'm making these connections, I'm not saying, look, this is what this film is about, uh, and it's not about X, Y, or Z. You know, when I used to teach English, uh, something I used to do with my classes, I would um, take out a picture book of Jack and the Beanstalk, and I would read them the story and show them the pictures and you know, remind everyone of the story. And I'd say, okay, nice, innocent childhood story. Uh, kind of weird that the moral of the story seems to be that the, the way to solve your problems is to steal and kill. You know, which is Mm -hmm, exactly what Jack does, steals Mm -hmm. the giant stuff. And when the giant tries to get it back, Jack kills him. Um, So I said, but now let's take a closer look at it. And then I would introduce to them all the principles of uh, the main principles of Freudian psychology. And then we'd go through the story again, and they go, "Oh my God, this is a Freudian tale. This, there's, a, you know, the 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 giant is the father figure, and the the beanstalk is a phallic symbol, and when Jack cuts it down, it's a castration thing, and and on and on." <laughs> so just when the kids were all good and convinced that this was uh, a Freudian tale, then I would introduce them to um, the basics of Marxist philosophy. Then we would go through it again, and oh no, Jack is the proletariat, and the 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 giant is the capitalist, and all the principles of Marxism are there. And then we'd go through it in terms uh, in Jungian terms. Then we'd go through it in feminist terms. So the moral of the story is that any great story or great movie, great work of art, if you look closely enough at it, everything is in there, and, which is really fun, really exciting. So what I did was I took some classic American films that most people are familiar with and just looked as you, I love the way you said that diving deep and, you know, dove as deep into them as I can to find the, the enlightenment part. Well, let's, let's continue a little bit with the the, the chapter one, which was Snow White, because, mm-hmm. you know, out of, out of all the movies, you know, that one would be like, Oh, I know, no, it's animated and all that, but it's like, Hey, does that really have an enlightenment story in there? And you started with Snow White and what she represents, but could you take us through, you know, some of the other characters, this Prince sure. Charming and there's the seven dwarves. And I know that Disney had a hard time coming up with all the different names for the dwarves and there was different reasons. And the, the way you kind of spin the tale about how that movie was made and tie it into the enlightenment uh, theses, if you will, is really fascinating. I would love it if you could share it and take your time. Sure. Oh, sure. Good. Thanks. Uh, first of all, a little historical note that people now forget. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was the first feature-length animated film. Before that, all there were were the little you know, seven-minute mm-hmm. short cartoons, yep. uh, which Disney was a great pioneer of with his, his Mickey Mouse cartoons. And, the, and Mickey Mouse was hugely successful. Mickey Mouse was one of the great international superstars. Um, and when Disney came up with the idea of doing Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, everyone told him he was crazy. His brother Roy, who was his business partner, kept telling him no. Disney kept going back to the banks to borrow more money, doing this huge project, bringing you know this army of hundreds of animators and artists and models and and you know filming actual you know little people dancing and moving to model the dwarfs after them and so forth. And it was called, in the press, it was called Disney's Folly. And, of course, it wound up becoming mm-hmm. 
the first great international blockbuster of the talkie era. And all the subsequent success of the Walt Disney brand came out of the success of that film. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a, it's a huge landmark in cinematic history. Now, how does the film start? It actually starts with the the Queen, Snow White's stepmother, uh, standing in front of the mirror, magic mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest of them mm-hmm. all? And the mirror answers first. You know what she's used to hearing is. Uh, yeah, you're the fairest in, in the land. And what's interesting is you look at her, and she is, um, is the queen beautiful? Interesting question. She's got all the, the characteristics of, of conventional beauty. She's got high cheekbones and, you know, smooth skin and so forth. But she's scary. She's like, she's like Joan Crawford, you know? Um, and, um, and it's because she really embodies the ego. She embodies the separate, the 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 illusion, really, that we are separate, autonomous beings. That you are that what you are is a separate thing that's enclosed in a bag of skin that separates you from the rest of the universe, and that your job is to triumph over all the other little separate entities. Um, and you know, once you buy into that, which of course that's the working assumption that most of us have. We're, you know, as little kids, we're we're told, you know, you're lying there in the crib, and your mom and they go, Robert, Robert, hey Robert, hey Robert, and after a while, you figure, well, I must be this Robert thing that they keep talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, you're not that. That Robert is just a sound. You're not really that. Right. Um, and and you start to assume that you're this body, and you're you, that there. But but then you realize, well, I can't be the body because the body keeps changing. So you think, okay, I must be this thing inside this body, this self. This their Robert must live in here someplace. Um, but really, what there is is a changing body, changing ideas, changing emotions. Uh, but we create this illusion that there's a stable thing. What what, what we can call this, again, illusion of, of a separate self, which is a definite, continuous, concrete, unchanging thing, which has to triumph all, over all the others. So, of course, we want it, we want this Robert or this Dean or whatever we call ourselves to be the fairest in the land, the smartest in the land, the richest in the land. Um, and, you know, we're really happy if we can, okay, I can build a bigger tower than the other guys and put my name on it in gold letters, just because you were talking about Donald Trump, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and if my, and then, and then if the other guy builds a tower that's two stories higher than mine, uh uh-oh, now I feel like, like my, you know, my ego is wilted and I got to build a bigger one and I got to become president and so forth. So, um... Uh, and that's what most of us are are caught in. Um, so so this is the and it's a no win game because eventually someone is going to be smarter than you, stronger than you, fairer than you, and that's how the film begins when the mirror tells the queen, "Oh no, now Snow White is the fairest in the land." So now the queen's got to do something about it. Snow White, when we first see her is dressed in rags, scrubbing the uh, steps to the queen's castle. And this is the status of the true self, the, the, that, that pure witness, pure awareness we were talking about for most of us. It's an orphan. It's there. We, we can't get rid of it, but it's like the neglected stepchild, the neglected, the unwanted stepchild. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ego, the ego has this uneasy relationship with the true self. It doesn't want to get knocked out of its throne. So the the queen tries to have Snow White killed. Before that happens, Snow White has a little encounter with uh, at the wishing well. Remember with Prince yep. Charming. Now Prince Charming represents enlightenment in 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 my view. Um, he represents the the ultimate fate the ultimate best and highest destiny that awaits Snow White uh, 
we, you know, which is to go off with, with Prince Charming. That is the ultimate fate of the true self, which is there all along, but as a neglected stepchild, its ultimate and best and highest fate is for it to move from the background into the foreground, for it to become recognized, for it to take over. And this is what happens. This is what meditation, and as you mentioned, I'm a meditation teacher. Uh, this is what meditation eventually brings about, this, the so-called enlightened state where we become free of the illusion that we're a limited ego. We, we experience 24-7 that we are actually this boundless, pure, snow-white awareness. We, and that's a great thing because otherwise <laughs> we're doomed, especially right. when you know thing, things like traffic accidents and cancer and bankruptcy and you know all the inevitable tragedies of life befall us uh if it's really really great that we are not that we are just the the silent snow white witness to it and Fantastic. that's why you know when we think of people like uh Jesus and Buddha and Socrates, these enlightened individuals, we just kind of know that they didn't worry a lot about dying. They all faced painful deaths, actually, mm -hmm. those three. And they, they, they were unfazed by that. Why? Because the body, they knew the body was going to be killed, but they knew not just as a belief or, or an idea, but they knew as direct experience that, well, I'm not that thing they're going to kill. Mm-hmm. That's a great lesson right there. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. it is. So 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 this is so Prince Charming in in this film represents that state where the 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 true self, self with a capital S we can say, comes into its full glory. And we see that at the end when Snow White and Prince Charming ride off together and where do they go? They go to a castle. The the film begins with the 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 queen's castle of you know isolation which is dark and unpopulated she's like the only one in there which is the exactly the way that the uh the ego is is trapped within its own boundaries its own self-imposed boundaries and at the end snow white and prince charming go off to a wonderful shimmering beautiful castle that's actually floating in the clouds you know, if you look carefully mm -hmm. at that in that last frame, that castle, it's 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 floating in the sky, which is mm -hmm. kind of, you know, if we take it on face value, that's kind of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but but in terms of the the way we're interpreting the film, that makes perfect sense. You know, Jesus is the the phrase that Jesus used for this enlightened state is the kingdom of heaven. Right. Which he said is not really in the sky. We we talk about it that way, but the kingdom of heaven is within you. It's what the Buddha called nirvana. Mm -hmm. So that's to me that's the basic outline of the film. Excellent. Let's uh, let's skip to something completely different now. Uh, one mm -hmm. of the many uh, a film that many consider the greatest movie of all time and without question the greatest trilogy and that would be the godfather and um, right. a lot of people think well this is about family and um of course there's been a lot of other you know like the sopranos kind of took off on the similar themes mm -hmm. and ray donovan even but let's talk mm -hmm. about the godfather because it was uh it was a tough film to put together and um each each of the three parts is very distinctively different and, uh, you know, I think uh, two out of three ain't bad. The third one was a little bit of a <laughs> misfire. But, uh, you right. know, hey, of course, uh, you, you'd hope that would have been the best one. But uh, one and maybe two might have been the best one. But uh, what's your thoughts in terms of uh, the lessons from uh, Enlightenment lessons from The Godfather? Right. Okay. Now, first of all, just to be clear, in the book, in Cinema Nirvana, I'm writing just about Godfather 1, the, the, mm -hmm. the first part. Which I agree. I mean, that is uh, my 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 wife. Uh, by the way, she's a filmmaker. She's a film editor, and she and I are are avid moviegoers. And fortunately, we we have a theater just about a mile from our house that shows all these old films. I'm going to go tonight and see A Clockwork Orange. Wow. And um, uh, what else? Uh, I forget. <laughs> um, and Saturday we're going to see a hard day's night. It's just fantastic. It's, it's oh, okay, that's fun. 
yep. paradise. So in so my wife and I have this list that we keep uh, of perfect films, just absolutely perfect, unimprovable films, and The Godfather is is on that list. Uh, it, it's just stupendous. You you can't take away or add a word of dialogue. The the gestures, the 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 acting, the casting of the characters. It is just an a masterpiece and it has you know it's a masterpiece of like shakespearean proportions and mm-hmm. yet it talks to everyone you know yeah. everyone everyone gets it so yeah the godfather right it's about the family uh on a that's on a on a very obvious level um what i look at is actually you can see it right there in the title the godfather uh i move the words around and i say it's also about God the Father. Mm-hmm. Okay. The patriarchal God, the the traditional God of the of the Abrahamic religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. The idea that the ultimate thing, the ultimate reality, the infinite, is like a big dad in some way. Okay. Um, now that idea of the patriarchal God, which is so, um, you know, it's so prevalent and it's so strongly ingrained in those religions. Uh, And people will, some people will take it more literally than others. Some people will take it almost completely as a metaphor. Um, But it, by the time Coppola uh, made this film in the 70s, the, the patriarchal God was kind of coming under fire. Certainly the patriarchal society and some of the patriarchal cultural assumptions had already sustained heavy damage in the 60s. You know, if you've been following Mad Men, that's that's largely what that that I think uh that show is about. Yep. Um you, you know, going from the 50s to the 70s through the 60s, a whole lot of that was that the idea of male privilege and that you know women are there as you know either sexual objects or kitchen appliances uh you know that idea was not going to fly anymore mm-hmm. um so it makes sense that the idea that god is male um also is going and and that god is a powerful patriarchal male he's he's a family head it makes sense that it's going to come under fire now coppola coming from a strongly catholic family i see him in this film as trying to um hold on to that idea of of the patriarchal god kind of making the last ditch defense of that idea so here we have Vito Corleone, the head of the family, who a lot of people could say, wait a minute, he is has presided over all this terrible violence. Now, the same thing at that point people were saying about the Christian patriarchal God. This is the God that presided, you know, in whose name people had the Crusades. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, and the horrible wars between the protestants and the catholics in in england and ireland and and all kinds of terrible um uh atrocities happening in the name of this god and uh so what what i believe coppola tries to do in the film is that well look okay violence happens but look he's he's also a merciful god in the opening scene when um, the Bonacera, the undertaker, asks him to kill uh, the two young men who raped Bonacera's daughter. And Corleone says, well, no, that would not, you ask me for justice, that's not justice, they're still alive. He says, we're not murderers, no matter what people say. So here's this idea that this God, even though he's, he's, he has the capability of great violence, that he's measured. He has a sense of decency. He has a sense of proportion. You know, the Old Testament idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for, for a tooth. You know, that was, if, if you read that, that line in context, people often cite that as, oh, you know, horrible Old Testament values. But actually, it's talking about justice. 
what it's saying is that punishment should be, it's not talking about taking vengeance, it's saying that punishment should be proportional. So Don Corleone displays a lot of those emotions. Okay, here's the best case we can make for a patriarchal God that we can feel good about. Now, he has three sons. So the Son of God is going to be, of course, in a, within a Christian framework, Son of God is going to be Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I see the three sons, Sonny, Fredo, and Michael, as show, representing three different versions of what Jesus might be. Sonny is kind of the old idea of of Jesus. He's uh, in a sense, the the worst, the most antiquated idea. Sonny is is ready, always ready for vengeance. He's ready for for blood. He's all the worst quotes in the Bible that are attributed to Jesus, where he's you know Jesus is ready to send people to hell for unforgivable sins. That's Sonny. Mm-hmm. And when Sonny is is gunned down at the toll booth, that's really like a crucifixion scene. You know, with all those reeking wounds, that's like right out of the Renaissance paintings of the crucifixion. Yep. Um, Fredo is, um, well, Fredo's a long story. You know, I don't even want to go into it right now. But Michael is the, mo- is the most interesting one because Michael really represents the idea of, of um, kind of, you know, Jesus 2.0. Jesus mm-hmm. as a really wonderful uh, friend, someone who we can trust, someone who is open to the, the, the balance of the male and the female. And he, the key, I think, is his relationship with, with Kay Adams, his fiance and later his wife, played by Diane Keaton, because she, she in a way, represents us. When we first see her at the wedding scene at the beginning of the film, she's the outsider looking in, asking the questions. And um, uh, Michael is gently breaking the news to her about what his family is and explaining the story about how you know his father uh, makes people offers they can't refuse, which is really a great definition of, of the old patriarchal Old Testament God. You know, this is one that he makes you an offer you can't refuse. If he, either you be on his team or you're in big trouble. Um, so, so Kay is the outsider. She, she is us, and is and um, her relationship with Michael puts us in the situation of loving him as she loves him, liking him, rooting for him, wanting to have a workable relationship with him. But by the end of the film. What happens is he lies to her. Remember when he when she asks about whether uh, he had had Carlo whacked, and he says, "Okay, don't ask me about my work." Finally, he says, "Okay, just this one time, you can ask me about my work." And she says, "Is it true?" He says, "No." And at that moment, when he lies to her, that relationship of trust is broken and the film ends with her she remember she go, she leaves his office to go get drinks and she comes back with the drinks just as the door closes in her face yep and to mm-hmm. me this is coppola's final statement there in the film he's saying no it's not going to work the old model the old the old patriarchal god even in a his his new incarnation the 2.0 be, new improved incarnation no we can't we can't relate to it it's not going to work awesome uh okay this is guys guys radio our special guest this evening is dean slider the book is cinema cinema nirvana uh let's talk about one more movie uh how about you know i always think of one of my favorite spiritual movies believe it or not is point break because uh you know, you've got this character Bodhi, and you've got Johnny Utah, and at the end they're shackled to each other, and it's like they're the same guy, really. It's just two different parts of men, but that's a whole mm. different discussion. I wrote down a bunch of movies that I'm like, okay, maybe maybe there's something there, you know. There's some obvious mm. ones, but like I was every time I've seen Point Break, I'm like, you know what? There's a spiritual story in this, and I guess 
I guess that was your mm. process, but uh, forgive me for the aside right. there. But yeah, no, get... that's a that's a great thought. I'll have to take a look at it. I haven't seen that film in years, so I can't really riff on it. But you know the name Bodhi. Exactly. Do you recall how they spell that in the? Well, of course you don't. I think, really it's, see B, I think it's B O D H I. Yeah. Well, there you go. You know, Bodhi mm-hmm. means awakening. It's mm-hmm. like Buddha. Yeah. It's yeah. related to to, mm-hmm. to Buddha, and yeah. and uh, and in fact, someone who is a Buddha who instead of leaving the world of change, uh, elects to stay in it to help others become enlightened, is called a Bodhisattva. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because throughout throughout the movie, he's teaching uh, the Keanu Reeves character Johnny Utah about how to really look at life in a much more open way versus the kind of straight line conservative way that uh, Johnny Utah has been approaching things and he's very repressed and uh, yet he's, he's, he's gone wrong. So, but at the end of the movie, well, you know, know, Keanu tracks him down all the way to the biggest wave in the world in Australia and they start fighting and uh, they end up handcuffed to each other. And it's like, of course, I'm like, they're the same guy. That's what this is really all about. And uh, right. anyhow, that's fun. Right. but I think I think the point is that every everybody you know read the book Cinema, Cinema Nirvana. But anytime you watch a oh, movie, and by the way, by the way, if if I can mention that sure. if people go to my website, which Please. is deanmeditation.com, deanmeditation.com, they can read uh, chapters of uh, all my books there, and Fantastic. also cease. See, uh, I've got a nice link there to a, uh, a half-hour TV interview where I talk about Jaws, which is a lot of fun. Okay. Well, I was actually going to say Jaws next, but let, let me switch over. Let's do uh, let's do The Graduate because everybody's familiar with mm. that, and um, you've got some interesting characters there. Um, you have the you know, the young guy Benjamin, and then he he makes love to Mrs. Robinson, and then to Mrs. Robinson's daughter, who you portray as kind of an angel in the in the script so let's get your thoughts on the graduate right oh that that is another perfect film by the way i've only got about a dozen of them on my list (laughs) (laughs) we're addressing two of them here um boy it's just it's just incredibly wonderful um to me to me the, the benjamin the dustin hoffman character in the graduate is the embodiment of adolescence that that special magical crazy time where we've come out of childhood and we haven't yet fully entered adulthood and we look around and say okay what's it all about and who am i and and with all possibilities in front of me what am i going to do who am i going to be of course, the, what's the one most famous line in that whole film? One word. Plastics. Remember, he's at his yeah. plastics. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, Benjamin comes downstairs to, to his, his party at his parents' suburban home here in L.A. celebrating his graduation. He goes out to the pool, and, and, a, and, a, and a friend of his parents says, tells him, okay, I'm going to give you one word advice, Benjamin. <laughs> Right. That's the future. The future is plastic. And of course, it it represents everything that he is horrified by. This idea of a plastic, prefabricated, false, inauthentic life, the life that we've just seen in all the clinking cocktail glasses of his his parents and, and their friends. Just before this upstairs in his bedroom, he's told his father, I want my life to be different. And we're never told different from what, but it's clear different from from what they're living. Something more. And by the way, one of the things that makes this film so perfect is the the score, which is all Simon and Garfunkel mm-hmm. yeah. singing songs like The Sounds of Silence, all these songs of adolescent yearning. And to me, a lot of that Simon and Garfunkel stuff is kind of adolescent. I, I, I have trouble listening to it a lot of the time, but in this film, in this context, it's absolutely perfect. So this is this, this adolescent yearning. And in fact, ironically, the word plastics has another level to it here, because that is what you're like when you are in this adolescent state. You are you're, you know, the way plastics are, are made, they're, 
they're um, uh, you know they're in this liquid state and then they get molded into some put in some mold to give them a shape whether it's going to be a surfboard or, or whatever and that's the shape they take on so so adolescence is this fluid moment yeah. And it has interesting parallels to, if you look at some of the traditional texts, such as the Tibetan Book of the Dead, where they talk about how supposedly at the end of each lifetime, we go through what's called the bardo. We go through this kind of intermediate stage, this rest stop, where we can then sort of, we, we get our ticket punched to, okay, what life we're going to to live next. And in a way, adolescence is, is like that. It's, it's, it's a rest stop. The very first scene where, um, under the opening credits, when Ben gets off the uh, plane and he's coming through, I actually go through this place a lot. It's at LAX uh, and you're coming from the plane down to the baggage claim and you're on a moving stairway with uh, um the colors of the tiles behind you change as you go along and it's like he's coming out of a tunnel it's like he's coming out of the birth canal he's getting born into this this new life oh fantastic now mrs robinson you mentioned he has makes love to her that's not not the phrase i would use <laughs> he has right, sex with exactly. her love's got nothing to do with it um and but what you know there's a thing that happens I can't speak for females. I know that for males, this thing happens in adolescence about sex, that we think that sex is something subversive. You know, there's a saying that every generation of teenagers thinks that they invented sex. <laughs> that, right? Great. You know, and it's like it's this great big secret that we're in on that our parents don't know anything about, which, of course, is right. completely absurd. And so we think that by when we first start to engage in our first sexual activities, we're being big rebels. We're getting out of the system, out of the we're rebelling against the establishment, the society. When in fact, what we're doing is we're buying into it. We're getting our ticket punched because uh, you know, well, you know, sex uh, leads to relationship. Once you've got a relationship, you need to to have a someplace you know put a roof over the heads of the two of you pretty soon babies are coming along and then you're you're back in the cycle and now you're the parents living in the suburbs with a with a wise ass kid giving you a, a hard time so to me miss yeah mrs robinson kind of represents that she's the uh she's the lover um, and at the same time, she's she's the mom. You know, he's got that incredibly horrible, lame uh, line to her the first time they get together in the hotel room, where he says, "Oh, I, I think you're the most attractive of all my parents' friends." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah. it's just it's just completely cringe-inducing. Yeah. Um, but then there is Elaine, and by the way, he never has sex with Elaine in the the film. Um, the the Elaine Mrs. Robinson's daughter who really is like as you say she is the angel she is we all have I don't know if we all have I know I've had dreams literally dreams at night of 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 a of a like a angel who is like completely pure and completely transcendent and virginal and at the same time just completely uh, uh, lovingly sensual. Um, I, I, I think you know movies are full of 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 you know they they're always trying to find a, an actress who can embody the resolution of those two opposites, and yep. uh, and we really get that there in the character of Elaine. So when they ride off at the end. Uh, in that school bus, and in the by the way, we're just skimming the surface here. I just I, I turn over all the stones, all the details. Why are they in a yellow school bus at the end, and so forth? Um, but it's really it's like okay, we're going off together. Maybe we're going to be married. We're going to raise a family and all that. But I've got my angel with me. I've I've had my uh, exposure to the, the that that something transcendent, something the, the transcendence of romance the transcendence of 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 
something sublime, and that's going to redeem it all. That's going to make it okay, even if it winds up being married life out in the burbs. Mm -hmm. So listen, the the book is uh, Cinema Nirvana, and you've done a fantastic job with it. Great delivery on the audio, as I had mentioned to you, as well as really, you know, a, a, a great set of films and really deep dive on every one of the films. You're not just skimming the surface. So it's a well worth the investment for people to pick up this book, or whether it's the audio book, audio book, ebook, or the physical copy. It's really, it's really interesting and well done and well thought out. And I, I think once you read this book, you'll 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 look at films a little bit differently and see what's below the surface there and what's above the surface also. So Dean, uh, thank you for being our guest and please tell everybody where they can find more about you, your website, all your social media stuff. Yes, my website is deanmeditation.com. That's deanmeditation.com. And through there, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter and all that other stuff as well. Great. Okay. Well, listen, thanks so much for coming back to Guys Guys Radio, and we hope to get you back again at some point. And it's been uh, our pleasure having you as a guest, and uh, I'm sure our listeners really enjoyed this, and we're going to go out and get that book. So uh, thanks so much, and uh, have a great summer, and enjoy uh, your work. All right. Okay, everybody, that's our show for this evening. I'm uh, on the road this week, and I kind of pulled the production together on my own, so I'm glad it worked, and I'm so thankful for Dean to to be part of the show this week. And I think we had a lot of fun and it's a, it's a great book. So make sure you check that out. Dean Slider. Um, okay. So next week we've got uh, another guest, uh, Lee Miltier. She's also an author and um, we're going to bring her on as of next third, uh, excuse me, next Wednesday, back to our usual time, 7 PM Eastern. So until then I want everybody to, you know, have a good time this summer. It goes fast before you know it, we'll be pulling out those sweaters again and everything else that we do on the East coast. Uh, for the dreaded winter but hey you know what football's around the corner so that's not so bad either so anyhow thanks so much remember uh better men better world guys guys finish first